can head to your classes. And everybody else, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 17 to 28 today. And while, while you're getting there, I started recently uh, re-watching an old sitcom, Everybody Loves Raymond. Maybe some of you are familiar with Raymond. Um, it's just such a great show because it takes the things that are true to life for all of us and just caricatures everything in, in a pretty funny way. And there was an episode recently that I watched. So, so you have Raymond, who's kind of the favored child. Everybody, everybody loves Raymond, right? Um, and you have his brother, Robert, who uh, just is kind of a droopy, you know, downtrodden kind of a guy and, you know, things don't always work out for him. And then, uh, and then you have Marie, who is uh, the epitome of a meddling mother, way too involved in, in the lives of her, her kids. And there was this episode where uh, Robert, who is he's a police officer, and he gets this opportunity to interview with the FBI. So a big career move for him. And he goes over to mom's house on the morning of the interview and asks his mom to iron his lucky suit. And um, mom comes out after ironing the suit and, you know, puts the jacket on him and he, he turns to the camera and you see this big iron mark on the back of his suit. Like she, she burnt his lucky suit. Um, and he realizes it and he's just livid that mom ruined his lucky suit. And like now the whole day is just, you know, in the trash can because she ruined his lucky suit. And, and so he just with much trepidation goes to this interview with the FBI and he's sitting across the desk from the interviewer and they're having a conversation. And then uh, somebody comes in to the office and, and brings a fax to the guy who's conducting the interview. And it's a fax from Marie. She faxed the FBI and is telling the FBI all these reasons, like she ruined her son's lucky suit and they need to hire him and he's just being a meddling mother, right? <laughs> kind of a funny episode. Well, today in our, our passage, we're going to see uh, a meddling mother uh, here try to intervene uh, with Jesus with regard to her two sons. And it starts in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 20, and it says this. It says that as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And so just coming off of, uh, you know, Jesus is out doing his thing with his disciples, and he pulls them aside as they're going to Jerusalem and says, oh, by the way, guys, we're going to Jerusalem, and when we get there, um, it's not going to go well for me, right? He tells them that he's, uh, he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests, uh, and to the scribes that they'll condemn him to death. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has talked to his disciples about kind of his mission to get to Jerusalem to die. You might remember the last time Jesus brought it up, just a few chapters back in Matthew 16, uh, he brings it up to his disciples. And Peter, being who he is, uh, stands up to Jesus and he rebukes Jesus for this kind of talk. And of course, Jesus has some, some harsh words at that time for Peter, calling him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan, right? Jesus was, was on a mission. Now, his disciples at the time didn't know, like it was unfolding before their eyes. We have the privilege of, of knowing the story and knowing how it goes. And so we, we get to look kind of backwards through history and, and we can connect the dots and we can see this. But imagine if you're Jesus' disciples, right? He, he's their teacher, um, they, they spend time together. They do life together. 
and Jesus tells them, I'm, I'm on a mission to die. What, what would you do if one of your friends came to you and said something like this? On a mission to die, it would probably cause you to have some pause. It would probably cause you uh, maybe to have some stern words for your friend. And here Jesus, for the third time in Matthew's gospel, tells them that this is going to happen, that he's going to be turned over, he's going to be condemned to death, that they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be flogged and ultimately to be crucified. Now, death on a cross, maybe you've heard this before, it's one of the most excruciating ways that a person can die. It's a slow, long, agonizing, painful death. Right T Today, when people are condemned to die, we have quick deaths. But in, in Roman culture of this day, it was a long and agonizing, excruciating, terrible, horrible, no good way to die. And so Jesus tells them this is what's going to happen. And then at the end, he says, and he will be raised on the third day. But you can imagine that maybe they didn't hear that part. <laughs> Right? Maybe they're kind of hung up on the bad stuff. They're hung up on uh, Jesus saying that he's going to die. And maybe they missed him say that he'll be raised on the third day. Or maybe they didn't miss it. Maybe they simply just didn't believe it. Right? That's certainly plausible to think. I mean, what would you do if you heard somebody say, I'm going to go die and then I'm, I'm going to be raised? Right? We would think that that person is crazy because that just doesn't happen. Well, it happened once. But other than that, it doesn't happen. Right? And again, we, we have the privilege of looking back and knowing how the story unfolded. This was unfolding in real time for the disciples. And so he drops kind of this, this bomb on them uh, for a third time. He, he lets them in on the plan. And this has always been the plan. This isn't a new plan. This has always been the plan of God unfolding for Jesus to die as an innocent man, to take upon himself uh, the sins of all of mankind or all of humanity, right? Always been the plan. And so Jesus kind of drops this news and then in verse 20, then a mother, so the, the Marie Barone of Jesus' day, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons kneeling before him and she asked him for something. Now, now what do you think somebody might ask in this moment of Jesus after kind of dropping this bombshell? Well, this is what she asked. Jesus asks her, what do you want? And like when Jesus asks questions, it's not because he lacks the answer, right? This is Jesus just kind of being patient with what he knows is coming. And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, in today's vernacular, we would call this question tone deaf, right? Jesus drops his bombshell. I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to die. One of the worst ways that somebody can die and here comes the meddling mother. When you die, when you're in your kingdom, can, can my sons, can they be the assistant regional managers of heaven? That's, that's the question, right? A completely tone-deaf question. Now, an interesting fact about this mother, this is likely the sister of Jesus' mother. So this is likely Jesus' aunt, which would make her sons Jesus' cousins, right? And so... We don't have, we're not privy to this in the text, but you can imagine there's maybe a little bit of a family dynamic that might be unfolding here, right? Hey, can, can, you, can you make some special considerations, you know, for your cousins, right? That, that's the question that's being asked. Now, Mark's gospel gives us just a slightly different account, tells us that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
came to Jesus and asked him. So, so Mark's gospel tells us that the sons asked the question. I don't know that it really matters who asked the question, whether it was the sons themselves or the mother on behalf of the sons, right? That's Mark's gospel. Uh, it says that the sons directly came to them. Matthew's gospel said the mother. But, but either way, this kind of ridiculous question uh, was asked to Jesus. Imagine this. Imagine, I don't know if you've ever been in this circumstance, but imagine if you uh, have someone in your family who is not long for this world. And, and maybe they're trying to get their affairs in order and kind of settle, you know, family dynamics. Can, can you imagine, you know, grandpa on his deathbed and, and maybe somebody in the family asking, hey, grandpa, what, what are you going to do with your car when you die? What, what are you going to do with your house? What, can I have your furniture? Right? This is kind of what's going on here, like kind of a crazy tone-deaf moment uh, in a bold ask uh, from Mary. So as we sit with just kind of the tension of this moment, right, if we, as we're kind of thinking about how this is going down, we're sitting with the tension of the moment and the audacity of the ask, I would ask you to consider that, that we all might not be a whole lot different than this mother and this, and these sons, we, we might not be a whole lot different than them. In, in this moment, the mother and the sons, Jesus' aunt and Jesus' cousins, are kind of looking to him as a means to their end. They want something. They're looking at him as a means to their end. And as I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, I, I think we often approach Jesus or we often approach religion as, as a means to an end. Do we not? There is a line of thinking in the sales world. Like if you've ever sat through any kind of sales training, if you've ever had a sales job and you sat through sales training, there's a line of thinking in this world, in the sales world that tells you, uh, here are all the things that successful people have in their lives. And so if you want to be successful, then you have to have these things in your life. And one of the things on those lists is religion or spirituality. Right? I've sat through hours of sales training that says successful people have a, have a spiritual component to their lives. Therefore, if you want to have success at your job, you have to have this spiritual component. At the end of the day, it's nothing more than a means to an end. Right? It's not a legitimate seeking of God and His will for your life. It's kind of, if I do this, then this will happen. Right? If I have this spiritual component to my life, therefore, I'll hit my sales goals and I'll, and I'll make a paycheck, a big paycheck. That's the line of thinking. Now, we all might not be to that kind of extreme, but maybe you're thinking right now of all the ways over time that you have kind of approached Jesus or approached Christianity as just kind of a means to an end. Right? And it's often reflected sometimes in the way that we pray. Sometimes the way that we pray, we make God nothing more than just a genie in a bottle. But if we just rub the lamp the right way, Right, then our wishes are going to get granted. That's kind of what might be happening here with this mother and, and her sons. And this isn't a new phenomena. This is something I think over history uh, we've seen. Right, and at the end of the day, it's a fundamental misunderstanding about who God is. A fundal, fundamental misunderstanding about who you are in light of who He is and a fundamental misunderstanding of, of why Jesus came and why he died on a cross, why he subjected himself to death, why he allowed himself to die as an innocent man. 
Now, it's probably true that in some, some religions, they, it, it is a means to an end. But Christianity stands alone in the world of religion. All the religions that are out there, Christianity stands alone in that we have a Savior, we have a God-man who came to us. Right? Every religion out there tells you what to do to draw near to God or to find God. Christianity tells you, here's what God has done to find you. Right? That, Christianity is different in that way, completely different. And when we understand that, then the thought that, that our Christianity is simply a means to our own ends is, is kind of ridiculous. Now, this mother and her sons, they, they would eventually come around. They, they would eventually figure things out. But in this moment, uh, they, they have a misunderstanding. And, and again, I don't think that we're all that different, that we have kind of these moments in our lives. Difficulty arises and we're quick to cry out, Jesus, take the wheel, right, when those difficulties come. And, and rightly so, to, to some extent. But, but if that's the only time that we're crying out to God is, is kind of when life goes off the rails, we might be looking at God as more of simply a means to our own end. So his mother asked the question, these sons of mine, can one sit at your right, can one sit at your left in your kingdom? In verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And so Jesus kind of answers their question with a question, right? Mom asking, can my sons sit at your right and sit at your left? Can they be the assistant regional managers of heaven? And Jesus says, can you, can you do what I'm about to do? Right? Can you drink my cup? Can you go through what I'm about to go through? And they ignorantly answered, well, of course. And th this shows that they don't even understand the question that's being asked of them. Right? When they say, of course, we can. An audacious response to their audacious question. In any case, Jesus tells them, you will. You will drink the cup that I drink. Just probably not in the way that they were probably thinking at the moment. Acts chapter 12 tells us that James, one of these sons, he was killed by the sword at the orders of Herod. He was martyred as a follower of Christ. And so he did, in a sense, drink the cup that Christ drank. So eventually, again, he, he would figure it out because he, he died for his faith. That's what a martyr is, somebody who dies for their faith, dies for their cause. Church history tells us that John, he was, uh, he was banished to an island for a time and while he was banished to this island, they put him in a vat of oil and boiled him in an effort to try to kill him. Can you imagine dying that way? Well, here's the thing. John didn't die. Can you imagine surviving that? John survived it. And church history tells us that he kind of died a natural death, but it wasn't for lack of them trying to martyr him for his faith. So, so these two sons eventually would figure out that Jesus is, is much more than a means to an end for them. They would figure out that he was the God-man, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, and they gave their life in service to him. And Jesus simply tells us without any other detail that the question that they're asking of who sits at his right and who sits at his left in his kingdom or in his glory, it's above our pay grade to know that. We, we, he doesn't give us anything else to go on. He doesn't give us a hint or a clue. He just says, 
above your pay grade. <laughs> we'll, we'll know in glory, but, but until then, um, we, we don't know that, and we're not meant to know that. Verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and he said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you can imagine the 10 when they overhear this conversation going on. I would be upset if I were the other 10. It's like, well, why, why, why can't I sit at the right or the left? Well, what makes you think that you can occupy those positions, right? Maybe a little bit of sort of, you know, rivalry among the disciples here. So they were indignant. So they were upset at the two for asking the question. And Jesus, never missing a teaching moment, calls them together. And he tells them, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that they exercise authority. So Jesus takes this moment to pull the disciples together and say, let, let, me, let me give you a lesson on how the world works. Here's how the world works. The world puts people in leadership positions who are the alpha dogs. The world puts people in leadership positions who are assertive and, and dominant and decisive. This is how the world works and oftentimes they exercise that authority in a way that's not good. Sometimes they exercise authority in good ways, right? But, but sometimes they exercise authority in ways that are not good. Just scroll your social media feed or, or turn on, you know, pick, pick your poison Fox or CNN, and you'll see that authority is not exercised often in a good way, right? Oftentimes, the authority that gets exercised in a worldly sense is lording it over right? Keep keeping the followers in subjection and under your thumb. And so Jesus is telling him this, this is the way that the world works. And this is our default. This is our default uh, of how, um, just because of how we're wired as humans, this is, this is how it works. I remember one time I worked a job where uh, they hired a new manager. And this new manager uh, came in in a very assertive sort of way. And day one, he's just giving orders to everybody and making everybody mad. And I know exactly what he was doing. He was asserting his dominance, right? He was making it known that there's a new sheriff in town and that he's, he's the alpha and that we ought to listen to him. And, and it worked. He made, every, he made everybody mad, but, but he was the new boss. And so we had to do what he said to do. This is the way... Um, that leadership often works in our world and what comes naturally to us. And if we think about it, th this ideology has crept its way into the church. And I'm going to try not to get up on too much of a soapbox about that this morning. But this ideology has crept its way into the church and we build often our churches on some of these presuppositions about what leadership is and what it looks like. Right? And so we, we look for pastors who are dominant and assertive and decisive. And, and these are qualities that, like, they can be used in a godly way. But they can also be used in ungodly ways, which we see. And, and we build churches with structures of, of hierarchies uh, that emulate the world, that emulate small businesses. And, and I'll 
be the first to stand up on my soapbox and say the church isn't a small business. Right? There, there's a, an aspect of what we do th- that maybe looks a little bit business-like. I mean, we have you know, funds coming in and funds going out and you know, the building to take care of those kinds of things. But, but at the end of the day, the church is not a small business. And, and we run our churches oftentimes as if they're small businesses with kind of this spiritual twist to them. And I think this is where we, we tend to kind of go off the rails. And so part of the reason that we have the leadership model that we do, we, we have three co-equal pastors. And we're not limited to three. It's just what we have right now. That may be different in the future. But, but we have co-equal pastors, so we don't have a hierarchy with somebody that lives at the top of a food chain just because we, we don't subscribe to that kind of a model. We don't subscribe to a model that says that, that a pastor should be an entrepreneur or a CEO. Again, n- not bad qualities in and of themselves, but it's not the, the biblical picture that we get of, of what a pastor is. That's not the biblical picture that we get for God's design of the church. And so Jesus gives this kind of lesson to his disciples of here's the way the world works. And then he tells them in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. You catch that? Here's the way the world works, right? Authoritarian, uh, decisive, domineering, assertive. But he looks at his disciples and he says, it shall not be so among you. There's a lesson here for us in this and, and how, how we operate in the church and how we operate as Christians in the world. It says, it shall not be so among you. So those that follow Jesus are to operate differently than those who don't follow Jesus. Plain and simple. Those who follow Jesus are to operate differently in the world, the way they engage the world. The church is to operate and engage the world in a different way than those who don't follow Christ in a different way. And then Jesus goes on to tell us this different way. He says, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And whoever would be great among you would be your servant. Now, these are not words that we often hear when you go to a conference to learn how to be a better leader. They don't throw out words like servant or slave they, don't, they, they throw out the words dominance and assertive and, and domineering. Those are the things that you get taught. But, but nowhere in any leadership conference ever do they say something like what Jesus said. This is a radical thing that Jesus is saying. And he's saying this to his disciples. Therefore, he's saying it to you and to me that as we operate in the world that we ought to consider servanthood and slavery. Slavery, like that's, a, that's an especially toxic word these days. We don't like that word at all, right? Bad, bad word. But Jesus throws it out. And then he gives us some rationale for this in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You ever think about why Jesus came the way that he came? Why he entered the world the way that he entered the world? Jesus could have come in political power. He could have showed up on the scene as an adult man and just took over. He could have overthrown the government, but he didn't. He didn't do that. Jesus could have came to be an influencer, 
right? That's a word these days that, that often pertains to you know, people that have lots of following on social media, right? They're called influencers. We pay attention to what they do, right? People are going to be paying attention to Taylor Swift today. She's an influencer, right? Jesus could have came as an influencer, and, and he did come as an influencer, just not in this kind of a way, right? Not in the way that we're thinking. Jesus could have come as, as a domineering leader. He could have just showed up and said, look, y'all better get it together. He didn't come that way. Jesus could have even showed up just as, as a charismatic leader, somebody with some charisma, right? Somebody that was super likable, right? He, he could have came and showed up that way, but he didn't. He came not to be served. And if there, if there were ever anybody in the history of, of everything that deserved to be served, it's Jesus. And he came not to be served, but he came to serve. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the rationale for him telling his disciples, don't be like the world, be, be like those who follow Christ. It's completely different. It's, it's counterintuitive to us, right? You don't think of, you know, winning friends and influencing your enemies with words like servanthood and, and slavery. We don't think that way. But this is exactly what Jesus is telling his disciples. So he's got two of his disciples wanting the top positions, right? Wanting to climb to the top rather quickly. And, and he's using this object lesson to say, you know, being a Christian means being at the bottom. Being a follower of Christ means being at the bottom because Christ came uh, and and he, he led from behind, right? He, he led kind of from the bottom. He didn't occupy a palace. He, he didn't have an army, at least down here on earth. We spend so much time in the church today focusing on how, especially to gain political power. We spend a lot of time with that. And, and, and you've heard all, all of us pastors talk about that. But here's Jesus definitively saying, that should not be so among you. The church isn't here on earth to gain political power. As much as I would love for that to happen, I would, I would love it for more Christians to run for elected office and, and to bring their Christian influence right into our local and state and federal governments. That, that would be a good thing. That would be a good thing. But Jesus is telling us that this, this isn't the formula of how to win in the end for the Christian. As good of a thing as that would be to, to bring our Christian values into our political arena, Jesus is saying don't do things the way that the world does things. Yet for Christians in the church, we spend an awful lot of time fighting the world in the way that the world fights us. Right? We, we kind of fight fire with fire. and Jesus is saying, nope, don't do that. that that's not the way that it's meant to be. Because we think about for Jesus, how is it that Jesus won? How, how, did, he, how did he achieve victory? He, he, his winning looked an awful lot like losing, didn't it? Matter of fact, his disciples in the moment of Jesus' death felt like they suffered a great defeat. So for Jesus, winning looks an awful lot like losing. And, and for those that follow Christ, it would make sense that, that our winning maybe ought to look a lot like losing as well, like this counterintuitive way that's the way of our Savior. I, 
I don't think it's ever been God's plan that, that we would win people into the church or into the faith by gaining political power. And I've said this a hundred times before. I don't think anybody's ever uh, or rarely, if ever, come to Christ as the result of losing an argument. Right? Oftentimes our, our evangelistic efforts sometimes are starting arguments and trying to win them. People rarely, if ever, come to Christ that way. And Jesus is telling his disciples these things should not be so among you and showing them from his own life, here's what I came to do. I came not to be served, but to serve and to offer up my life, to sacrifice my life as a ransom for many. And so the way that Christians engage the world ought to look maybe a lot like that, right? <clears throat> so bringing this home, kind of a couple big lessons that we see here is that Jesus is not a means to our end, right? He's not our personal genie just to get what we want. And his followers are not to engage the world in the way that the world engages itself, right? We ought to look different. And the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit of insight into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. He says this, says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul is telling us here simply that God's ways are different than our ways. God's ways are counterintuitive to our ways, and oftentimes they're opposite of our ways, right? He tells you, look around the room, there's not a lot of important people here, no, no offense intended in that. But, but we don't have a room full of, you know, diplomats and world leaders and, and famous people and those kinds of things. We're, we're just a room full of ordinary people. And thank God for that. And God in his wisdom has chosen to use that to, to shame the wise of this world and to bring people to faith in Christ. It's God's plan that we would approach the world in such a counterintuitive way to the world itself and that we would do so in serving the world, and that we would do so in intentionally enslaving ourselves to the world, because that's what Christ did. 
That's what he did. And so I'd ask you just to consider what that would look like in your own life when you go out these doors. What does it look like to serve a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity? What does it look like? What does it look like for you? Do, do you think about, you know, when, when you turn on Fox or CNN, do your wheels start spinning thinking, here's, you know, like the church needs to rise up? Or do you think, how can we serve these people that are lost, that don't know Christ? And so I would ask you just to consider in closing uh, what, what it means to, to kind of go against what's intuitive to you. Right? What's intuitive to us is to fight for what's ours. What, what's intuitive to Jesus is, is to serve those who would ultimately kill him. What, what's intuitive to Jesus is that to win looks an awful lot like losing, and that ought to inform the way that you as Christians, that we as Christians engage the world, and certainly we collectively as the church, how we would engage the world when our winning looks an awful lot like losing. Consider what that means when you go out these doors. and Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning. We're thankful that you uh, love us enough to contend with us, that you love us enough um, just to bring correction to our, our wonky thinking at times. But more than that, we're thankful that, uh, that you love us enough and that you contend with, with us enough that you would uh, save sinners uh, who sometimes, uh, oftentimes, uh, don't get it right. Um, we're thankful that you're patient with us we're thankful, God, that we can uh, come to you when we've blown it. And so I would pray uh, for all of us that you would help us to consider what it looks like to go out in the world and to serve the world and to be enslaved to the world for the purpose of bringing people to Christ. Help us as individuals, help us collectively uh, as the church uh, to live the way that you've called us to live in a way that doesn't come natural or easy to us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.